Good morning. Hope you all had a Merry Christmas. It's good to be back with you. I will be in Luke chapter 2, looking at the first seven verses, 2, 1 through 7, so if you'll turn in your Bibles there with me. And uh, while you're turning there, I do <clears throat> want to make a preface before, uh, before I begin, is that, uh, you know, many of us drive the same route to places, work, home, uh, whatever it may be, the store, uh, and we see the same sights over and over again, the same scenery, the same houses, the same trees over and over again. Nothing is out of the ordinary, nothing is, uh, nothing is eye-catching anymore, because we drive the same way every, every time. Uh, and so nothing, nothing is uh, remarkable, nothing's out of the ordinary, nothing uh, is eye-catching about our daily commutes. It's all routine. And, uh, and sometimes that, that same disposition actually uh, comes up when we look at particular texts that we read over and over again particularly the scriptures that we look at today, is that we hear Luke 2, 1 through 7 every Christmas. We read this story every single Christmas, and it becomes routine, and it becomes almost like a commute, nothing remarkable about it. And so many will try and spice it up to attract interest and to uh, make it more uh, appealing and make it more attractive and things like that. So I'll I'll just say this, is that uh, the scriptures don't need us to spice them up. Scriptures don't need us to help them become more interesting. The Christmas story will be what it has always been, a display of God's grace and truth given to us in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, this morning, you may not hear anything new. You may not hear anything earth-shattering. You may not you know, have a stone unturned. You've never, I've never heard that before, but maybe that's okay, right? Maybe redundancy is good for people who are very forgetful, right? That being us. And so this morning, let's just ponder and wonder at the, just the grandness of the birth story of Jesus Christ. And though it may feel routine and it may feel like a commute, there are still things here that we need to actually listen for and hear in God's Word. And so let's read it and then let's pray. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let us pray. God, we want to first begin just by thanking you for bringing us here this morning to worship together. God, during even this Advent season where we get to intentionally ponder on the birth of Jesus Christ, God has come in flesh to dwell among us. Thank you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in your son Jesus Christ to show us who the Father is. And we want to ponder on that this morning and leave and worship, God, that our lives are radically changed because, because you have entered into this world in your son Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. God, I hope that this morning we would see the humble way that, that you have entered into this world and that
that God, we petition you, God, create in us humble hearts. Hearts filled with humility that care about one one another, care about serving other people. God, that you would help by your spirit dwelling in us through your word to kill pride, any, any ounce of pride that may be living within us, God. Because that is not characteristic of how our Savior has entered into this world. Lord, we love you. By your spirit working in us, give us eyes and ears to hear and see the beauties of Jesus Christ in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I, um, you know, we, we've all heard, if you follow football and things like that, uh, or any sports team, you all always hear of a coach, maybe once a year, goes to a program that does not have a winning tradition. Uh, you know, everything is bad about it. It's a bad institution. It's a bad fan base. It's bad facilities. It's bad players. It's bad coaching staff. Everything is bad about this opportunity that this coach takes on as a head coach. Uh, we, we, we've all heard of those things. Uh, everything is against him. The cards are stacked against him, right? He's behind the eight ball. Uh, The odds are just not in his favor. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. It's not the right circumstances. It's not the right situation. Everything is against him when he takes on this position. And so how could anyone ever succeed in this this situation when everything is just bad? Everything seems to be against him, right? It does not seem that there can be any success in this scenario. And as everything that we've recalled and everything that we've gone through in Luke chapter 1, uh, as you'll remember what uh, Jim and Nick have preached through, all the glorious text about this Savior, this Davidic King coming into the world to smash uh, God's people's enemies and to uh, overturn uh, the world's corruption, is that interestingly, if you look at the situation in which Jesus was born, it actually kind of looks like the same thing. If he is truly the king of kings, then this is not the right time, this is not the right place, this is not the right people, this is not the right parents, and this is not the right way that the king of kings should come into this world. It it, it just looks like out of everything that we've read in Luke chapter 1, you think, oh man, this is going to be grand, this is going to be awesome, this man, this this, this Messiah coming into this world is going to be out of this world. And then you read Luke 2, 1 through 7, and you're like, this is it? This is, this is how he's coming into the world? Like this? It just seems like, man, the cards are stacked against him. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. It's not the right people. It's not the right way. But as we'll learn this morning, and as you'll see on your outline, is this, in God's providence, Jesus the Messiah was born at exactly the right time, in the right place, to the right parents, and in the right way, to fulfill all the law and the prophets. So that'll be our first point on our outline is this. Number one, when Christ was born. That Jesus was born at exactly the right time. Usually when a coup happens or, 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 or someone tries to overtake a, 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 a hierarchy or a king, it usually is happening when a government is floundering or a king is, uh, or a ruler is unstable or a government is uh, teetering kind of on the brink of just breaking altogether. That's when a, a government or a ruler is most vulnerable, right? That's when, that's when you take advantage of them, right? That's when you, when you do the, the overtake, when you run the coop, when everything is brittle, right? But these weren't the current social um, government, cultural circumstances in which Jesus arrived in this world, right? This is what we get from the first three verses. It's actually interesting that 
before we get any words about Jesus coming into this world, is that Luke wants to go ahead and tell us, what, what, what's the society, what's the culture like? Who's in, who's in power? Who's the ruler at this time? What's going on? And so this is what we get in the first three, three verses, is that we get Caesar Augustus. He's decreeing that a, sen, uh, a census is that people should be registered for taxation purposes, right? And so why does Luke feel the need to tell us these details about a census and about, uh, about Caesar Augustus and what he's decreeing? Maybe it's for the historicity of it. Maybe it's uh, verifying that this actually historically happened in time and world history. Sure, that could definitely be the case. But as many have already po- pointed out, many scholars have pointed out, is that it may not just be about historicity, but rather uh, what Luke is doing is that he is situating Jesus' birth in world history. He's situating the grand birth of the Messiah in the context of world history because what didn't happen is this. When, when Jesus was born, the world's political structures and the kings and the rulers, they handed the keys over to Jesus. and were like, hey, oh, you're in town now? Great. Hey, here's the keys. You have the kingdom. It's all yours. We know you're the Messiah. You take over now. That's not what happened, is it? Right? The world political structures, they didn't stop. They continued on. The Roman Empire was not waiting in eager expectation of the Messiah. They didn't set the table and decorate the town and light fireworks when, Messiah, when Jesus was born. Right? They weren't waiting expectantly for him. They were actually in opposition towards him, as we see in Matthew's Gospel about Herod. He didn't want to want to celebrate and welcome the Messiah, the Savior. He wanted to kill him, right? So, Jesus' entrance into this world, into world history, was not as, as expected. He didn't come as a Pharaoh. He didn't come as a Caesar. He didn't come as a Fuhrer. He didn't come as a president. He came as a, a baby, right? In a manger with nothing to his name under a world leader. He didn't enter the world as a world leader. He entered the world under a world leader, into an empire. And so how is the Messiah going to be the king of kings and rule the entire world when somebody is already ruling the world? Right? How is this going to happen? And this guy doesn't seem like he's willing to just kind of give up the throne, right? And seem like any of the world leaders are just saying, oh, Jesus is here. I guess I'll step down now. And Jesus can take over, okay? That'll be good. No. No one's doing that. Is that it seems like Caesar Augustus is he's comfortable with where he's at. Because guess what? He decrees something and people do what he says. They go to be registered. He has command of all the peoples and they do what he says. Doesn't sound like he's ready to give up the throne, right? To this Jesus born in the manger. No. Doesn't seem like like it's the best time for the Messiah to be born. Just, it would seem like, hey, everything needs to be kind of brittle right now in, in the government, and it seems like Caesar Augustus would have to be on, kind of unstable for Messiah to be born. That, that seems like the best time for Jesus to be born, when everything is unstable. But that's not when Jesus is born. Jesus comes and he is born under a political structure, under a government. And this is meant to show that, that Jesus is set in contrast to every world leader even the ones that he is born under. Because unlike any pharaoh or Caesar or king or president, Jesus doesn't enter the world like a political leader. 
Unlike any other political leader, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't rule through fear and hostility and anger and violence and military power. He actually, him and his kingdom, is ruled by meekness and humility. Is that unlike any political leader, he doesn't make false promises of justice and peace and security. He actually can assure and secure peace, justice, and security. Because this is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. Let me read this for you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. You know what this is saying? Is that this Messiah who's going to be born, he is coming to establish his own government that is in contrast to every other government that has come, that has been, and will ever be. Because every world government promises this. There will be peace. There will be security. There will be comfort. There will be justice. There will be righteousness. And guess what? No world structure or government or political leader can bring any of those things. But this Messiah, this Jesus Christ, who was prophesied of old by Isaiah, this Messiah, this King, this Jesus, is the one who actually can come and bring true justice and righteousness to this world. It says this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is that king. Messiah's reign will be characterized by peace, righteousness, and justice. And he models this in his life. And so, though Jesus is born under under a Roman government, under a Roman ruler, that he doesn't enter the world like every other ruler does, that it seems like he's born at the wrong time, that he, he should be born at a different time when everything is teetering and tottering and unstable. No, Jesus arrived at the right time to inaugurate a new government and a new kingdom that would promise and secure and assuredly bring justice righteousness and peace to the people that he rules over and so though though caesar thinks that he is in authority over jesus is that actually caesar is is under jesus's authority the whole time is that jesus reigns even over his current governmental powers that jesus has governments over all things and what's great about this is that caesar augustus thinks he has control oh he's decreeing and people are doing what he says but in the whole grand scheme of things, this is that Caesar Augustus is playing into the providential hand of God. He, he's doing exactly what God wants him to. Good. Oh, oh you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a decree and people are going to go to their hometown so I can, they can be taxed and I can get their money. Great. This is exactly what God intends to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus is doing exactly what God wants him to. And so, despite there already being a ruler and power, it is not a surprise or a problem for God. Because Jesus was born exactly at the right time. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, at the perfect and right time. It was not a coincidence that Jesus was born under this ruler and at this time. And so though, though it may seem unlikely, how can Jesus be the king of kings and rule over the world when somebody's already ruling over the entire Roman Empire? That does not cause an hindrance to God when Jesus is born. And not only, not only does God providentially intend when Jesus is born, he also providentially intends 
where Christ was born. This is the second point. Where Christ was born. God orchestrated the place of the Messiah's birth to fulfill the law and the prophets. You know, in our days, stars, famous people, they're, they're born in kind of the, 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 the iconic places, right? They're born in, um, you know, New York and Hollywood and London and Dry Prong and Beijing and, yeah, Beijing, that's funny, I know, right? They're born in all those places. They're born in kind of the iconic places, you know, famous places breed famous people. That's where they come from, right? And so a person comes, a famous person comes from a famous place, a significant place, right? And so it's probably more so in the ancient world, is that there's iconic, famous places there. And as we see, the Messiah is not born in one of those iconic, famous places. It's born in Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary, what do they do in verses 2 through 5? Is that as obedient citizens, they travel to their ancestral land to register there. Right? They travel from Galilee to Bethlehem where Joseph's hometown is, in order to register for the census. And so, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, right? It, this can't be the place where the Messiah is going to be born. It cannot be. This cannot be the right place. It, it's got to be somewhere else, right? It's got to be somewhere else. Because Bethlehem has no significance. It has no glamour. It has no prestige. There's nothing, there's nothing, whoa, Bethlehem. Oh, man, I, I would expect a Messiah to be born there. That's not, that's not what's being said. It's like, Bethlehem? Like, dry prong? Really? What good can come out of dry prong? You're looking at it. Thank you. But, but Bethlehem? No, no, no. It, it, that, that can't be. That, that, that cannot be where the Messiah is going to come from. Not, not possible. Not possible. Because there's no kingdoms, there's no palaces, there are no guards. There's, this is not a place of significance. There's no prestige to it. This must be a mistake for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. But this is not a mistake in God's providential hand. It's had he brings Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill what the prophets have said. Micah 5, 2 through 5. Let me just read it for you. But you, O Bethlehem of Hathorth, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Just listen to that. The prophet says, Bethlehem, you're, you're kind of small. You really, you really shouldn't even be named among the clans of Judah. Like, you're just, you're not that big. You, you need to pro- take a couple years, grow a little bit, and then maybe we'll consider letting you in. It's kind of like that. It's not significant. It's not a significant place. It's too small, right? But this is what the prophet says. From you shall come forth from me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So this town of no significance, of no glamour, of no prestige, of no fame at all, too small to be among the clans of Judah, this will produce the Messiah. The unlikeliest of time and the unlikeliest of place. This is where the Christ is to be born and when he is to be born. And that God uses a census to bring him there. Right? This census is God's instrument 
in his providential plan to, to bring them to Bethlehem. To fulfill what he has promised through the prophet Micah of where the Messiah is to be born. So what seems to be impossible and insignificant in the world's eyes, this is exactly what God does and what God uses to bring about his plans and to show off and demonstrate his wisdom and his power and his might and his sovereignty to all, to all, to all people. The things that are insignificant in this world, God uses and does them to show his great power and his great wisdom and his great might. So, just as it seems like, okay, this is not the right time. Okay, this is not the right place for the King of Kings to be born. So, not only that, it doesn't seem like he's been born to the right parents. This is your third point, to whom Christ was born. Okay, he hasn't been born in the right time. He hasn't been born in the right place. And he hasn't been born to the right people. Right? But what we'll learn is that Jesus was born to exactly the right people, because he is the long-awaited Davidic king. We're all aware of family businesses, right? You know, we see signs on the streets, you know, Bill and Sons Law Firm, you know, uh, Blank and Sons Architecture, whatever it may be, you know, anything like that. We, we know family businesses that sons usually take over the family business or uh, that they, they, um, they succeed the father and his profession and things like that. You take on what your father does, right? The son continues on the father's work. And just like that in royalty, the next in line takes the throne. That's what happens, right? And so our expectation up to this point is this, this long-awaited Messiah will be a king. But... If Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that is supposed to be a king, then he must have been born to the wrong family. Because guess what? Joseph and Mary are not of nobility. They're not royal. They're not kings. They're not monarchs. They're not rulers. They are peasants. That's it. So it must be that Jesus was born not just in the wrong time, not just in the wrong place, but he was born to the wrong parents. God did not get this right, <laughs> is what the unspiritual eye may say. Because nobility is a family heritage. You know, to be noble, you essentially must be born in the right family. That's all it takes. Or you've got to pull a sword out of a stone, what cartoon does. But Joseph and Mary don't seem to have the nobility required to, to have a, a king come from them. They are of no significance, just like Bethlehem. They are not of nobility. They're of no glamour. They're of no prestige in the world's eye. They just seem to be your usual young, uh, young working class couple of peasants. Right? The gospel accounts tell us in Matthew and Mark that Jesus is known by being the carpenter's son, right? Isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that him? Joseph was not a noble. He was not a not a king, not a monarch, not a ruler of all, and that he in his social class would stay there. He would not surpass where he was at. This is who he was. So if Jesus is this long-awaited king, then he's been born to the wrong family because Joseph and Mary are not the right people. And again, as we will learn, this is exactly the people that God is going to use to bring about the long-awaited king, Jesus Christ. And this is how he does that. Is that in God's providence... What makes this couple unique is Joseph's own heritage that Luke goes ahead and tells us about. He wants to make it abundantly clear that Joseph's lineage is extremely important. Just look what he says this. 
that Joseph, verse 4, because he was of the house and lineage of David. What Luke is going to do multiple times when he brings Joseph in the story is that he's always going to connect him to David. Look back in chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, that to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of who? David. So every time that Luke brings up Joseph in his story is that he's always going to, he's always going to um, connect him to David. It's almost like name dropping, right? Anybody name dropping here? Yeah, we all know what name dropping is. You like, yeah, I'm the uh, the friend of the fourth cousin, twice removed of the guy who walks Joe Burrow's dog. Yeah, yeah. So me and Joe Burrow are basically friends. Yeah, that's name dropping, right? <laughs> that's what that's what we do. Uh, I, I'm the friend of the fourth cousin of twice removed um, of the dog walker who walks Joe Burrow's dog. So we're on first name basis, right? That's name dropping. We name drop to, to, to kind of elevate, uh, elevate superiority of some sense, to elevate significance. That's what we do, name drop. And so this is what Luke's kind of doing. He's name dropping, right? Every time Joseph comes into the story, he's going to name drop and say, he's of the house of David. He's of the house of David. Here's the question. Why does that even matter? Why does that even matter? Why does it even matter that Joseph is connected to David? Why does it even matter that he is from the house and lineage of David? Why does Luke feel the need to tell us this? Well, as you've probably already figured out, is that this long-awaited messianic king that was to come to save Israel from their enemies, to restore them to their future and former glory, this Messiah, this king, will come from David's line. And this is exactly what is being done in the birth of Jesus Christ. The king that Israel had placed their hopes in. This is him. Because he's come from David's line. Because long ago, the Lord had told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that from your offspring would come a king. And he's going to be like any other king. Because he's going to have eternal dominion. No one will overthrow him. And he's going to reign universally, not just over a small empire, but over the entire universe. This is who's going to come from your line, David. This is what the Lord tells David. In 2 Samuel 7, chapters 12, chapter, verse, uh, verse 12 through 16. Let me read this for you. This is the Lord talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, David has promised one who is going to sit on his throne forever and reign forever over all people. And some may say, and you may say, well, that's Solomon, right? Well, here's the problem with Solomon. What's the problem? He, yeah, he died. Somebody said it out there. Yeah. So uh, to be a king who sits on a throne forever over all people, death is kind of like the criteria. You can't die, right? Right? 
And so what Luke is doing is that he is connecting David and Joseph, that Joseph has come from David's lineage, and he's saying, here's why it's important. Because Jesus is that king that was spoken about in 2 Samuel 7, who's going to come and sit on David's throne forever, and he's going to reign over all people. Every person will be under his rule and authority. And this is that king, Jesus, born in a manger. He wants us to positively know that this is that king who is going to come and reign in righteousness and in truth, as Jeremiah 23 says. So Jesus wasn't born to the wrong family, right? In God's providence, Jesus was born to exactly the right family in order to fulfill the promise of the Davidic covenant. And so the prestige of Joseph and Mary, them being of no significance, them being peasants, that's not a surprise to God. Is that in His divine wisdom and orchestration and providence, God brings the long-awaited Davidic king from Joseph and Mary, this Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was born at the exact right, exactly at the right time, in exactly the right place, to exactly the right people. If those are all true, then, then it just seems like if he really is a king, then this doesn't seem like the way he should have entered the world. How Christ was born. This doesn't feel the right way of, this doesn't feel like what a king deserves, this kind of birth, right? doesn't seem like this is the setting and the, the welcome that a long-awaited Davidic king deserves. And this is our final point, how Christ was born. Jesus was born in exactly the right way, humbly. I did a little reading on royal births, um, which are very interesting. Typically, in, when uh, there's a royal birth uh, in the royal family, like there's, there's particular components that happen to it. Uh, kind of things that have gone throughout history in the royal family every time there's a birth. Just listen to a couple of these. So when there is a royal birth, there is an, historically an announcement of that birth. And this is how it happens. The birth announcement uh, used to be, now it's typed, uh, was handwritten by the doctor immediately after the birth and sent in a car to Buckingham Palace to be displayed on the easel in the front of the palace for the public, document, documenting the baby's gender, but not the name, the easel is still used today to announce royal births to the public. So when there's a royal birth, the doctor writes down what gender it is, sends it in a car to Buckingham Palace so that they can put it on an easel so everybody can know about it. That's how they announce royal births. And not only that, there's even, uh, they have even have like a, a, an attire for the baby right when the baby's born. They, they, uh, they don't dress it in clothes, but they have a, a hand-knitted, uh, a hand-knitted, luxury shawl for the baby uh, and it's knitted by the same company G.H. and Hurston son is that, that every royal baby is going to be put in this this nice luxurious shawl that's what they'll be wrapped in right when they're born and not only that think about this uh, that at the most recent royal birth uh, they had a team of 20 medical staff 20 medical staff to take care of the royal birth. You're like, are you crazy? 20 people. One, 20 people in one room. I don't know if it was in one room, but to think about 20 people in the room, really, to, just for this one baby. Just for this one baby, right? And not only that, when there is a royal birth, 
Here's what happens. The Tower of London sets off a 62-gun salute for the royal birth. Somebody just shot off a shotgun at my birth. Like, that's all that happened. It's a boy. Right? 62-gun salute when a royal birth happens. All right? And this is, this is the last one is the most interesting. So, as you know, royal births, uh, the, the babies are christened. At a royal birth, but at royal births, they get special water. They get special water. Not Dasani, not Aquafina, none of those. From the River Jordan, they go get that water. As you know, River Jordan has significant spiritual things to it. But they go and get River Jordan water to, um, to christen the baby in because Aquafina and Dasani are not good enough. Right? So all these things are happening when a, when a baby in the royal family is born. All these components happen to signify the birth of someone in the royal family. This is what's to be expected at a royal birth. But here's what's so interesting, is that we have none of these components in the birth of Jesus Christ, right? Here in Luke 2, 1-7, through 7, I don't see any medical staff here. I don't see any 62-gun salute right here. I don't see any of these things. None of these components are here. It doesn't seem like this is the proper setting or audience attire to welcome the birth of the long-awaited king. Where are the royal robes? Where's the palace? Where's the people eagerly waiting and expecting the king? Where's the the salute? None of this is to be found. Rather, Jesus is born in obscurity. He's placed in a lowly trough that animals eat out of that there's no guest room for him and his Joseph and Mary to stay in because it's overcrowded because of the census in Bethlehem. They essentially have to be born in a stable. He's wrapped in cloths to protect him and keep him warm. No, no place to lie his head. This doesn't sound like the trappings of a king. This doesn't sound like the place. It doesn't sound like the way that the king of kings should be born. The scene of Jesus' birth doesn't seem to be one fit for a king. The setting of his birth indicates that Jesus didn't seem to be a king at all. Right? To the unspiritual eye, Jesus' entry into the world is just an indicator of his status and his identity. He's just another baby born into the Roman Empire under two peasants. That's all he is. It's just another birth. Just another birth in Bethlehem. But as we know, one's identity and status is not determined by how they're born. And maybe this is just the way that God intended for the long-awaited Messianic king to be born. I don't know if anybody reads uh, Lord of the Rings or anybody like that, but there's a line that uh, J.R. Tolkien says about Aragorn, the ranger. He says this, All that is gold does not glitter. Let me say that again. All that is gold does not glitter. So he's talking about Aragorn, the ranger. He's a nasty-looking dude, rugged, just gross-looking, long hair, smelly, and things like that. But Aragorn is actually the king of Gondor. So what Bilbo's saying is that, yeah, he don't look like a king, but that doesn't change it. He is a king because looks don't matter. That doesn't change your status. And just because this doesn't have all the trappings of a royal birth, this, this just because it doesn't have all the, the extravagance that we would expect, this doesn't change that this is the long-awaited messianic king that the world has been waiting for.
And so it doesn't mean that he isn't a king. It just means that he is a different kind of king, right? He doesn't enter the world like every other king, and he doesn't rule like every other king. He doesn't come and rule through power plays and deceit, hostility and violence. He comes and rules meekly and humbly because that is the way that he entered into this world. Daryl Box says this, he says, a stable was the Messiah's first throne room. And that is it. So this is what Mary's Magnificat states, and Jesus' arrival as the Davidic king, his kingdom and Ray would turn the world upside down because he is coming unexpectedly. And he is being born in an unexpected way that none would expect a king to be born, right? But this is characteristic of Jesus' entire life, is that humility and meekness are not just characteristic of his birth. It is characteristic of his life and his ministry. If you remember, uh, particularly in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 17, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he enters on what? Anybody remember? A donkey. Kings don't ride on donkeys, Especially this warrior king that everybody expected. They're supposed to ride on a valiant horse with sword unsheathed, with army behind them. But that is not how Jesus entered in Jerusalem. He entered in on a donkey. A borrowed donkey. Right? Meekness and humility was not just characteristic of Jesus' birth. It was characteristic of Jesus' life. And it was characteristic of Jesus' death. As Dr. David already read for us this morning from Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read again for us. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God was something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that from the birth of Jesus Christ to his life and ministry and to his death, meekness and humility was characteristic of who he was. He entered this life and entered this world humbly. And he, he died humbly as a servant. Humble servitude. And so as we look at Luke 2, 1 through 7, it does not seem like it's the right time. It does not look like it's the right place. It does not look like it's the right people. And it does not look like it's the right way for the King of Kings, the long-awaited Davidic King, the Messiah, to be born. But it is exactly how God in His providential hand intended it. To show that this ministry and life of Jesus and what He is bringing into this world is one that looks like any other king or ruler. Because he enters this world in humility. So this morning, as we look at, look at how he is born, I, I hope that we all feel this. Because what Paul, reflecting on Jesus' birth and life and death, is that he's saying is that the way in which Jesus was born and lived his life and died, this is to be characteristic of the people who followed this Christ. This is to be characteristic of the people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. That's why he says, have this mind among yourselves. Humble servitude, because this is exactly from womb to tomb of how Jesus lived and interacted in this world with people. Humble servitude. 
And so if we call ourselves people of God, if we call ourselves disciples of this Christ, yet we live in pride and arrogance and actually self-serving, we're saying we don't, we don't know anything about this Christ. That must be a different Christ. Because that is not the Christ who entered into this world, lived the life that he did, and died the way that he did. Because he lived it characterized by humble servitude, serving others at maybe our own expense sometimes. So this morning, I, w- I want us to think about that. Is that, does the birth, life, and death of Christ and the way that he was born, lived, and died humbly, does that characterize us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ? Is that when you get in an interaction with somebody, are you seeking to be self-serving to promote your own good and your own interest above another's? Are you seeking to take advantage of other people any way that you can? Maybe if it's just slightly. Oh, well, this won't hurt them that much. This will give me some benefit in the end, and maybe we'll equal out. Because what Jesus did in his self-sacrificial life and death is that he, he gave all of himself for us and that he served us completely and fully. Not desiring to take advantage or to promote his own benefit, but ours. Second Corinthians 8 says that he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. Is that the life, the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ is marked by humble servitude. Is our own lives marked by the Christ that we say that we love and that we cherish and that we worship? Because it is humble servitude. And not only that, is that we even get a a different definition of what power looks like in this. Is that as everybody expects what a ruler is to look like, think like, act like, come from, be, oh, they come from a powerful family, and they come with this kind of personality, and they're they're very strong in this sense, and they're they're good at leading this way. They tell people, and they do what they want them to do, like Caesar Augustus. But Jesus comes on the scene, and that is not how he leads people. That is not how he shepherds people. That is not how he loves people, right? Is that he is gentle, yet he is just. And so our inclination sometimes is to put trust in political leaders. They'll bring security. They'll protect us. They'll promote righteousness and justice. And what we learn from Isaiah to the end of the Bible is that the only one who is going to bring true justice and righteousness and comfort and security to this world will be Jesus' own government and rule and authority because he is the perfect ruler. And he is the one to be trusted and submitted to. So that we submit to Christ and his rule because it is good for us. And that he brings true righteousness and justice in this world. And not only that, I'll, I'll leave with you, Leave you with this last application. Is that in all these things where it seems like from the world's eyes, this is, again, not the right time, not the right place, not the right people, and not the right way, is that God and His sovereign providential orchestration can do with whom and whenever and wherever what He pleases. And so what seems like hindrances to us, what seems like barriers to us, is not a barrier to the infinitely wise 
and powerful God. And so you may be in a situation right now and say, this is a black hole. There ain't no getting out of this. There, uh, th- th- there's nothing that can, that can good come from this. There, there, there's nothing that can be beneficial to me from this situation. And I would just ask you, all of us, to step back and see what a situation that looked really hopeless in Luke 2, 1 through 7, of a king of kings coming from nothing at a wrong time, in a wrong place, in a wrong situation. Say this, maybe even in your own circumstances, God can providentially orchestrate for your good and his glory, even when it seems unlikely and impossible for you. Because guess what? For us, it is unlikely and it is impossible on our own strength. But as we've seen, in unlikely circumstances, God is a providential God who can do whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases, for our good and for His glory. And so do you trust that? Because ultimately, what God has done for His glory and for our good is that He has given us a Savior, and not only a Savior, a King, who has come to rule in peace and justice and goodness And he's come to rule us well. Having a ruler is not a bad thing. Having a bad ruler is a bad thing. Having a good and perfect ruler is a great thing. Submission is not a bad thing. Submission to a bad king and a bad lord and a bad ruler is a bad thing. Submission to a good king, perfect king, righteous king, true king is a good thing for the people that submit to him. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, know this, he is a king. But he is a good king, and he welcomes all to submit to his rule, to submit to him as king and lord over their entire lives. And that he rules well, because he shepherds us as the perfect shepherd does, with care and concern for us. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, he has come in this world as a king, and unlike any other king, he has laid his life down for us dying on the cross for our sins, but gloriously being resurrected from the grave to give us hope, to give us future, and to give us rest in His perfect and righteous kingship that we can live in for all of eternity. Let us pray. God, we love You. Again, we ask that You would help us to continue to just bask in the glory and the greatness of the birth narrative of our God, Savior, and King, Jesus Christ. That He has come in flesh, God in flesh to dwell among us, to shepherd us, to save us, to rule us, God, well. Because He is a perfect King, long foretold, will come in righteousness and truth. God, I pray that this morning our affections would be raised for Him, our desire to serve Him and to serve others will be heightened. And that God, this morning, we would worship here in song, that we would worship in all areas of our lives because we have this true King and we have this hope in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?